I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Daston, and myself, Justin Bua. Lizzie is a really smart human being and a professor of art history and a G, you know, I don't know how to say that. You're a G. And I, myself, am an artist and an art historian, self-proclaimed without a degree. But, <laughs> also you know. brilliant and a goat. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I may be a G, but you're a goat. Wow. <laughs> she doesn't mean greatest of all time. That's not an acronym for that. She literally I means mean a barnyard like a, animal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, so I said it for you. Um, as a barnyard animal, I <laughs> want to talk about los tres grandes today. And by saying that, we are defaulting the definition to the three great ones, uh, the Mexican muralists. We, we wanted to do something on the Mexican muralists. I studied nothing about it. Lizzie knows all about it because she lectures on it. <laughs> but I know about it just by default. Because so who are they? Name them. I, I have no idea. Um, let's see. <laughs> it would be Diego Rivera who I love dearly, uh, Sequeiras. Yes. And Ross. Ooh. Ooh. No? No, what? that was great. You just said it so beautifully. Oh. Orozco. Orozco, yeah. So Sequeiras, Orozco, and the reason I'm very familiar with uh, Sequeiras is because my old choreographer, Julie Arnold, that was her uncle which is really crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's my favorite of the three. So she was my choreographer when I was a break dancer, and she was the choreographer for many Broadway musicals like Hair, and she always had his prints all over the house. So I saw Sequeiros' work everywhere. Um, on top of that, uh, I you know, it's interesting because they each have so many different diverse skills. I mean, there were so many good Mexican muralists at that time. But... I feel like they all come to the table like giants, like we say, the, the three big ones, right? Because they are, it's like having Superman, Aquaman, and Captain America. They all have their own skill set, but they're all superhero-like. So I would say that, that that's why I think that those three are the three. I'm surprised Tamayo isn't part of that. I actually don't really think that Orozco is as... Much of a giant as Siqueiros mm. and Rivera, but okay. I do think Tamayo is. But as you said, there were so many people working within yeah. the mural aesthetic in Mexico City mm -hmm. in the early 20th century. But these three, they each came to America and did murals here. And so that's really what we're going to talk about is the Mexican muralists in the United States and the controversies that ensued. Well, let's start with Diego Rivera because... If you really look at Diego's early work, he wasn't a muralist. It wasn't like he found his voice. I feel like some artists belong in certain genres. Like Diego Rivera, when you see his early work, it's good. It's good. The Cubist work? You yeah, mean? the Cubist work. It's good. It's not great. No way is that great. Then all of a sudden, when he starts doing murals, then he finds greatness. So it's interesting, right? Because some people are slash. 
he's a thinker, uh, revolutionary slash artist. And I feel like that's where he produces his greatest work. And some people also produce their greatest work, like a lot of street artists. We see this all the time. When we see these street artists, like, I'm not going to mention any names, Mir One. Um, <laughs> Mir is, to me, like, you know, like, you see his, his stuff giant. It's just, like, breathtaking, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Um, on canvas, doesn't have the potency to me as it does big. I love seeing his work big. I think he just knocks you out when it's big. And I think other artists are like that too. And maybe it, and it's not just scale, right? It's it's content, it's context. But some people need to paint big. I feel like Mir One needs to paint big. I feel like a lot of these guys on the street need to paint big. Mac needs to paint big, right? And it just knocks you out. I think Diego Rivera needs to paint big. When he paints small, it just doesn't hit you. Doesn't punch you in the face. It feels a little neutralized. I agree with that. And I think the reason why they painted big is ultimately very interesting to unearth because at the time of the Mexican Revolution or in the immediate wake, so the Mexican Revolution was between 1910 until about 1920. And then after that ended, these artists were trying to help toward reunification of their communities. And they were trying to propagate communism and when you are trying to communicate with a largely illiterate class of people, then how do you do that? If you can't write out a manifesto that people can easily read and digest and then agree with, then you have to activate their, their politics through visual language. And so that's why murals became incredibly popular in Mexico City at this time, because they were ferociously politically activated. And... We see them outside in the marketplace. We see them inside in governmental buildings, but always accessible to everybody. And when I teach the history of street art and graffiti, I always go back to include the Mexican muralists because the energy of what they were trying to create is the exact same. We are trying to make art egalitarian and democratic, and we are trying to take away that preciousness and create something that actually has a message. And so often in a Rivera mural, you will recognize people and that got him into some trouble, but that really bespeaks the power of what he was doing because he's commenting on political figures and also figures within culture and, and uh, literature too sometimes. Yeah, and murals were not just going on in Mexico. I mean, they were going on all over, obviously, during the WPA. You had really wonderful artists like Dean Cornwell doing a lot of murals. You had other artists who were American artists doing great murals. But why don't you talk about the migration of some of these artists over to the States, I believe, during the WPA, right? Where they yeah. were financed to do murals, and then the trouble that that got them into uh, from multiple perspectives. I'm glad that you mentioned the WPA because I think that probably was energized through murals because of the precedent set by Rivera, Siqueiros, and Orozco, mm -hmm. among others. And the government, at this point, were trying to make the New Deal seem like it's really working and to prove its efficacy. And the three R's, relief, recovery, and reform, that's basically the concept of the New Deal. And so the government hired these Mexican muralists to come to the United States 
and promote these war or uh, these economic depressed efforts, which is kind of ironic to me because what politically united these Mexicans? I mean, I'm asking you. You tell me. They're communism. Right. <laughs> and what is... Trotsky, Lenin, that's really... Yeah, exactly, Stalin. Oh. And then the U.S., we are a capitalistic society. And communism is in very vehement opposition to capitalistic values. And so what did the U.S. expect when they're bringing in these peoples who are, uh, people who are ideologically different from the ideology of this country? Didn't they anticipate that there was going to be some inflammatory material. But the, you, they you didn't. Tell, but, why, but why? Why did they bring them over? Because of their popularity? Because yeah, of their skill set? Exactly. I think it was their because popularity. Because they saw the success of the mural format and the way that it was able to provide cohesion so and they also were, provide hope. So they were basically bringing them over as illustrators. Saying, right. <laughs> hey, we, we know that you guys have gotten a lot of success. We're not really considering the fact that you're doing it for the love because you have to, because you guys are revolutionary, because you guys are communists and socialists. We want to bring you over to illustrate our ideology and without you putting your stamp on it whatsoever is really what they expected. Exactly. You nailed it. And then they were shocked when these people who were very politically active, when they have subversive content in the work. And, and so subversive characters. It's not just the content, right? It's the fact that when Diego Rivera... Don't, don't say, say anything. Yet. Okay. Yeah, well, don't, right. Don't give it away. I, <laughs> don't give it away. Don't you do it. <laughs> and when I say content, I mean through characters because all of their work is representational. And it has okay. to be because they are, they're storytelling. That is what they're doing. So first of all, I want to just dispel a common misnomer about them. We always group these three muralists together. And we always talk about them as being communists. But not all communists are the same, which is kind of antithetical to the tropes of communism, but it's true. And Siqueiros and Rivera hated each other, and it's because Rivera was a supporter of Trotsky. Mm -hmm. And actually, when Trotsky was exiled to Mexico City, Rivera and his wife, Kaolo, they housed Trotsky. And Frida um, Kahlo, she's talking Frida about. Kahlo, yeah, his wife. Um, and Siqueiros, he was a supporter of Stalin, and he actually attempted to assassinate Trotsky. And so clearly there's a schism between these painters. And that I just think is important to note. And didn't Frida Kahlo have an affair with Trotsky? So we think. I don't know right. if it's true, but the okay. movie tells me it is. Okay. Great movie, by the way. <laughs> Such a good movie. So Orozco is actually the first one to travel to the U.S. And he did a great work on the campus of Claremont, the, all the Claremont colleges mm -hmm. outside of LA of Prometheus. Mm -hmm. And so this is the least politically charged. I think in general, Orozco is maybe the least interesting because he's the least provocative. And instead Prometheus, of, of course, is the gentleman who stole fire from the gods and then was uh, t t tied to a rock and had a uh, vultures eat his liver out and the liver regenerated, and the vultures kept eating his liver out over and over and over. Exactly. Again. Thank Don't you. Don't steal fire from the gods, motherfucker. Go ahead. So uh, I was just going to say that. Really? No. Okay. I was like, <laughs> you'd never curse. How was that possible? I was That's never my say it. <laughs> thing. Right. And he didn't steal fire just for the exercise of stealing. He stole it to bestow knowledge onto mortals and to take it away from just 
the gods and then to provide equity for all. Zeus so, doesn't play that. Exactly. No. And so what is the lesson, the moral of that story? It's that he's, Prometheus is a tragic martyr figure. He is sacrificing his physical self for the general betterment of his community. And that's really how Orozco saw himself because he, even at the time, was the least popular of the three and he only had full use of one of his hands. And so he always felt like he was a martyr sacrificing for his art and that he was never really given the recognition that he deserved. And so I think we have a... According a, to you, that should be right right in alignment with your belief system because you didn't think that he was one of the most important ones. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there it's you true. go. So he's actually right. <laughs> well, I think when you're so concerned about public reception mm -hmm. and you create work that is predictive of your concerns, then your work isn't going to read as powerful. Mm -hmm. And Siqueiros was a gnarly guy, and he was so experimental, and he didn't do things for other people. He did them because they were aligned with his beliefs. And so mm -hmm. to me, authenticity reads. And Orozco just doesn't feel as authentic of an artist. Well, Siqueiros also, a, from an artistic point of view, he's a, a very, very good draftsman. He was the best, in my opinion, draftsman of all of them. Yeah, I would agree. So let's talk about Siqueiro. So soon he came to L.A. and he was commissioned to do a work called Tropical America. And that was the only parameter. He was just told by the local government, just call it Tropical America. So we're in L.A. You would expect there to be an abundance of resources, of petroleum, of fruits, of vegetables, maybe a beautiful sun, just talking about the abundance of the city. And he took it in a different approach. So he worked with assistants, and for months they slaved away over this pre-Columbian landscape with pyramids, and there are trees, but they don't have leaves. It's all about kind of the death, the crumbling, the history of an environment, not the immediacy of the moment. And the night before this work was unveiled, Siqueiros, after everybody else went to sleep, he snuck back to the location, which is on Olvera Street, and he worked throughout the night to paint this final figure. And then when the work was unveiled, imagine everybody's surprise when we see an indigenous figure crucified underneath this bald eagle. And so that was an incredibly inflammatory, provocative, subversive gesture. And he's referencing the- Where was this done, sorry? On Olvera Street, downtown. Los Angeles. Los Angeles, right. yeah. In the right by the markets, mm -hmm. yeah. So he is referencing the relational dynamic between feudal U.S. in Latin America, and not in a positive way. And I think a lot of people valued and appreciated his honesty, but a lot of people were also really triggered and upset by this kind of imagery, and they didn't want a crucified body mm. outside for children, for anybody to see. So sure. this became a huge impassioned debate between these two sides, and eventually the work was whitewashed. And this is one of the earliest and most powerful examples of governmental censorship of public art. Great story. <laughs> no, seriously. That what a was nuanced a response. That was a, that was that was a great that was a great story. Um, so now let's talk about you're talking about work that was whitewashed, governmental censorship. Can we talk about the mural that Diego 
Rivera did for the Rockefellers. Yes, I think are we are we on track for that? Because I know that you and I lectured on that at your college at Santa Monica, and I know that you talk about that a lot. And so, and people can look up that painting. What is that painting called? Man as the controller of the universe, or man, it's something. Man as the controller of the universe. But guys, the Rockefeller you, mural. Yeah, if you, if you look that. up the Rockefeller mural, and, and if people don't know Rockefeller, Rockefeller, you don't have to be you don't have to uh, be a Rockefeller to help a fella. But <laughs> Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest, most powerful uh, people in American history, and he hired Diego Rivera to come in and to do a mural at in the lobby, right, of the Rockefeller Building. And I think the fact that it was Rockefeller is significant because the Rockefeller family, along with the Carnegies, the Morgans, and the Vanderbilts, they are these huge New York titans who just made tremendous, stupid wealth in oil and in the railroads Mm -hmm. right at this time, probably 20 years prior to when this happened. And they epitomize capitalism. Absolutely. And to reiterate, the... Mexican muralists are incredibly negative about any kind of capitalistic ideal. Which you, I mean, the, the irony once again is yes. just insane. It cannot you be are overstated. Hiring, you are so smart financially. You are so smart with how you're making money. But you are so dumb to think that somebody is going to just completely bury their ideology and to come in to illustrate your capitalistic ideals. That's not going to happen. Like, artists are artists because we have a vision, and we are going to express our vision. And anytime that you're going to bury the truth of you really takes away the idea that you are an artist. And not only that, but you're going to be a joke to your artistic friends. You're going to be a joke to your community. They weren't beholden to... Uh, you know, fit in to America. They weren't starting out. These are people who are, these are artists who are powerful and successful in their own right. These are artists that are powerful and successful in their own right. They don't need you to make them, right? So that was that was mistake number one. Huge mistake number one. And if you want a painter for hire, then you do not hire an artivist, somebody who right. creates art Another out of their... Yeah, it is. Artist, activist, exactly. portmanteau. Yes, it is. Just like podcasts. Yeah, just like podcasts. <laughs> so that was a huge oversight on Rockefeller's part. And he was just thinking, okay, this worked in Mexico. Now this is going to work here. And Rivera is garnering all this acclaim. And I have all this money. So I'm just going to throw a bunch at him and have him create something that beautifies my space. And again, just like the Siqueiros example... All Rivera was given as a parameter was this long title. And what Rivera created was just this stunning, subversive (laughs) act against everything that Rockefeller believes and stood for. So the the mural is divided into two parts, and it's really, really complex to fully unearth. Yeah, too complex. Yeah, it's too complex. There's a million figures, there's a million things going on. Totally, but the left side just, this is very basic, but the left side is the bad side, the right side is the good side. And we see on the right side, I believe it's the top right quadrant, there are these people who are in some kind of wartime environment, but they're not 
armed with the the most technologically savvy weapons. They are peasants, presumably from the Russian Revolution that happened in 1917, which was also promoting the communist ideology. So we have like-minded political individuals on that side. And then on the left side, the bad side, we have a counter-narrative to that, which is more about the technological advancements and about mass destruction and, and murder and genocide. And if you look at the painting from a technical standpoint, I did he use tempera? Is that what he used? I think so, yeah. yeah. He's using the typical fresco uh, materials. So he's really not a technically savvy painter for per se. You know what I mean? He's not like Alfonso Mucha, you know, the wonderful, the wonderful uh, painter who uh, was just a crazy draftsman. Or he's not like uh, Tintoretto. Yeah, Beards or Tintoretto or some of these some of these muralists, Cornwell, Dean Cornwell. Some of these muralists were super, super duper uh, realistic and super technical. Um, Diego Rivera was a little bit more cartoony. He outlined his figures much like a cartoon. He was a little bit like a, uh, just a little simple in terms of how he dealt with rendering. He's not really dealing with atmosphere. He's not dealing with uh, too much perspective. It's a little bit more definitive of just his style. I don't know how else to say it. It's very Rivera-ish, Rivera-esque, Rivera-like, which is great. Yeah, it is it's great. There are, there are contour lines which mm -hmm. don't actually exist in nature. Absolutely. And I think that he it's is... It's hyper-stylized. Yeah, very stylized. And he's prioritizing the content to the execution. And that really fits within what these social realist artists were trying to accomplish because they are telling us a story. And so these figures are all there for... an a distinctive narrative purpose. And so whether he shades the background, that mm -hmm. wasn't his mm -hmm. point. That wasn't his objective. So in the middle portion of the work, the, the composition is divided by a large man who is the literalized version of the man controller of the universe. Mm -hmm. And then to his left on the bad side, we have flappers and they indicate conspicuous consumption. They're drinking. They seem completely oblivious to all of the conflict that is going around them. And then on in that same quadrant on the right side, there's the really complicated bit. We see some figures that we should recognize, and they're all united. And what I think is important about this union is that the hands who are in this, are in this pile, they are pigmented differently. So they're not just white bodies. We have diversity. And the person who's leading this gesture is Lenin. And when Rockefeller saw that, he was like, absolutely not. <laughs> and there are multiple points of this within this mural that should have been red flags for him, that he should have known and decoded to mean this is an attack on my lifestyle and my way of being. But no, he just saw that in Lenin. And he said to Rivera, you have to get rid of Lenin. Mm -hmm. He didn't say you have to get rid of Trotsky or you have he probably to get, didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he just didn't care. But Lenin was the issue. And he said, if you get rid of Lenin, it's fine. And Rivera said no. And Rockefeller kept on giving him outs. He said, well, we can just dismantle this and put it in MoMA. Finish the work. We'll have it housed in the museum down the street. And Rivera knew that the controversy was going to launch the acclaim of this work more than the work itself. So he mm -hmm. said, nope, it's site-specific, it's here or nowhere, and so then nowhere. The bluff was called, and the work was destroyed before it was completed. 
And Rivera was paid, so he went back to Mexico City and he recreated the whole thing. And then in the bad part with all of the conspicuous consumption and the flappers, he includes a tiny portrait of Rockefeller and then right above Rockefeller's head, we have cells and they're cells of syphilis. And so he gives him this STD. (laughs) I mean, he wasn't a subtle man. No, and... uh it's weird because if you think about that, like realistically, if you think about that time and place, Rockefeller's going to work all the time. He's going to the building all the time. He's always seeing Rivera creating this work. And he must just feel like as he goes upstairs, all, you know, it's Rockefeller's employees or, or friends are saying, hey, man, you got to stop this. This is crazy. And he's like, oh, just let him do it. You got to imagine, right? The dialogue of that moment must have been really intense. Then he goes down the elevator. He sees him doing it again. He's like, hey, do you mind? He's like, I'm working. Don't talk to me. Right? Like, the, the, it's, a weird, it's a weird dynamic that's happening because he's creating this piece in his space, in his home, in the womb of his creation. And he's basically making fun of Rockefeller and dissing his entire idea and his entire reality. He's just basically taking a piss on his reality. Exactly. It's like Zeus emerging from the head of his father. Oh, no. Athena emerged from the head of her father. But then there was another myth. Eating. You know that Goya painting? It's Saturn devouring yeah, yeah, yeah. his Saturn, children. Yeah, exactly. Saturn, Saturn devouring his children. Right, just yeah. so the concept of the destruction of the creator. And so I think in this case, Rivera... Kronos was giving birth through the head. Athena cracked out of Zeus's head. She might have. I think so. This Athena, is appropriate because we talked about Prometheus. backwards in Greek is Athena, the daughter of Zeus, protector of mankind, and Odysseus. <laughs> Anyway, we're digressing <laughs> to Greek mythology again, but the point is, is that Diego Rivera had a lot of cojones on him. A lot of, you know, those balls were pretty fucking heavy to be able to do that to such powerful people. Super I mean, really heavy, were. but also incredibly intellectually savvy because Absolutely. he could have saved the work. And I think most artists would have opted for that. And instead, he was thinking five chess moves ahead. Sure. And because of that decision. What a capitalist. The way he was <laughs> oh, no. thinking. The way he was thinking was, though. I mean, it was like opportunistic, capitalistic, monetary rich. Everything he's doing, because he's taking the money. He's taking the money and running. And he knows he's going to recreate it. And he knows he's going to get the fame, which what comes with fame? Fortune. So You just mic dropped this episode. I don't think there's anything else we can say. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. <laughs> It was well, it's a massive, like, awesome point. It was a massive, interesting, <laughs> capitalistic moment for Diego Rivera himself. You're not the real capitalist. I am, and I'm going to do it through visually, uh, visually portraying communism. Mic drop. Peace. <laughs>